So hi everyone, this is Jody Crane, the Chief Medical Officer for Team Health. I'm really lucky to have three very knowledgeable guys here on this podcast with us. Um, Nathan Schlicker, who's the Regional Director uh, in the Northwest Group, Tom Vasek, who's the Regional APC Director, and Aaron Laird, the FMD at St. Joe's, part of the CHI Franciscan system. Uh, you know, we've had this outbreak in Washington uh, state, and that's really kind of the epicenter so far of the United States out, outbreak of COVID-19. And these guys are literally living this every day. So we really feel like this information will be invaluable to the other emergency departments across the nation that team health staffs. So let's kick it off with Nathan. Uh, Nathan, would you mind describing the CHI system or the system that we're talking about today? Definitely. CHI Franciscan is uh, a seven-hospital system here in the Northwest that spans three counties uh, and uh, Team Health staffs five of those sites. Uh, and we're part of the larger national organization called Common Spirit Health. But our catchment area ranges from Seattle in the north down to uh, Olympia in the south and out onto the uh, Kitsap Peninsula uh, out around Bremerton. And so we've had the privilege and opportunity to uh, be in this epicenter and uh, working to figure out how we're going to do it. And uh, we've got great people uh, working on this, uh, in addition to Aaron Laird, our facility medical director at uh, St. Joseph's Medical Center, you know, and uh, Tom Bassick here, our regional APC lead, and myself as our regional director of quality. Uh, we've got other people that are experts, uh, such as one of our line clinicians, Deborah Kleinman, who is... Uh, one of our disaster experts and travels the world into hot zones and uh, to be able to leverage the resources and the scope of what we bring as team health has definitely been an asset as we work with CHI to uh, figure out how to tackle this beast. So great, Nathan, and um, one more question before we kind of get into the deep stuff. So what, uh, describe St. Joe's, you know, pre any of this. So uh, what's the volume? What What's a typical day look like? I mean, um, good flow, do you have boarding, all that stuff? Well, I would say that all of our sites, uh, you know, Washington is a booming state, and so our buildings are not keeping up with our population. And so whether it's uh, St. Francis in King County, which is boarding anywhere from 10 to 20 patients in their ER any given day in what's a 112-bed community hospital, or St. Joseph's, which is our tertiary trauma center that has 300 beds uh, or over 300 beds, uh, and is boarding uh, upwards of 30 patients in our 31-bed uh, ER many days, uh, we're already at capacity. And so coronavirus and isolation precautions and all of these challenges uh, have added a un unique and new challenge to what was already a very challenging practice environment. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you characterized it as a unique and new challenge and not an impossible situation. So uh, I really appreciate your your positive outlook and this kind of I know you guys have this this we can do anything approach so um, really appreciate that so I'm going to get right into it and um, I, I, I'd like to kind of walk through what I think are some of the key issues and what I've been hearing from from docs all around the country and we'll start actually with the front door and so Aaron um, you know tell us about you know the system that you have in place that where a patient kind of walks in and, and maybe they Maybe they're undifferentiated. Maybe they're belly pain. Maybe they're a URI. You know, maybe they are coronavirus. How are you guys sorting those patients right now? So I think the initial thing is to determine rapidly who has URI type symptoms and isolate them 
or separate them physically from the leukemia patient or any of the other patients that we don't want to intermingle. So the, the very first thing we did was have a pivot nurse uh, directly out front and physically subdivided our waiting room with a wall, a, a portable wall that we erected so that anybody with um, URI type symptoms would uh, immediately go to side A and all others would go to side B. Uh, as Dr. Schlicker mentioned, uh, we do have boarding on an everyday basis and so uh, as much as we would like to get to everybody immediately, it just is not physically possible. So following the, the initial triage, we also subcategorize them. So if you meet criteria basically for moderate suspicion, meaning you uh, have either come into contact with someone who has, has the virus and have positive URI symptoms, or you have a fever plus URI symptoms uh, and, and flu-like illness, then we further subdivide you into a much smaller internal isolated waiting room. Uh, we were fortunate to be able to activate our Ebola plans from years ago and immediately stand up a negative pressure room uh, where we feel like we can contain uh, these patients even if they're coughing violently uh, without contaminating um, a much larger space. And so we have a, a larger waiting room that we initially subdivided. Um, and if you just have a cough or other URI type symptoms but no fever, you're directed immediately to to one side there. If you have moderate to higher risk exposure, then you're directed into the internal waiting room that is physically isolated. And then, of course, if you're sick and we have heads up from EMS or if you walk in the door and look ill, then we bring you back directly into the main emergency department into a, a separate room. We don't always have an isolation room that we can immediately place you in, but we do have a room that we can put you in, close the doors, and put a mask on the patient. And so those are, those are the first three critical steps that we've implemented. Wow, and so you literally erected a wall in your waiting room. Uh, it, it is, it's about three-quarters finished. It is going to be a physical wall. From floor to ceiling? Floor to ceiling. And it's not one of the things you can pull up when you're done? Oh, it's not. Uh, it's, it's a temporary wall, so we have some construction experts that uh, can put up um, temporary walls for construction purposes, and uh, so they can put it up in a day. Uh, it's pretty easy. It's made out of some kind of modular, modular um, plastic surfaces. Uh, it's about the thickness of a regular wall. But that's yeah. how we actually built out a couple of our uh, isolation rooms was we took a, a regular room and turned it into a negative pressure by erecting an anti-space out in the um, entryway where we could don and off uh, material as necessary. Wow. Okay. So, so we've got this system where we've got well people in the waiting room, but they might, might have URI symptoms. We got kind of the mid-acuity patients in a, an internal isolation room where they're kind of cohorted, and then you've got the sick patients that are direct back in the room because they need it. And then, um, uh, you, Nathan, can you tell me about testing? So, you know, I got these patients kind of all sitting around everywhere. <clears throat> Maybe tell me about ideally how you would test them, and then talk about some of the challenges you guys have faced relative to testing. Definitely. I, that is probably the key thing right up front is the challenges in getting testing. Uh, you know, the capacity to test has really been a constraint. Um, and so we've been working in kind of uh, one foot in the isolation and try to contain world and one foot in the transition to this being another viral pathogen that's in our community that just has a higher virility. Uh, so initially we really were forced to limit our testing to only the sickest of the sick that didn't have another explanation. As capacity has started to ramp up, we're being able to extend that. 
but our Department of Health uh, has done, uh, I think, a good job in an algorithm that is useful to us uh, when we divide that up. And uh, in those that we know uh, were exposed to a positive case or those that travel from an endemic area, the threshold for testing is lower, just fever and uh, or lower respiratory symptoms such as cough or shortness of breath. As we've recognized, though, this has gone into the community uh, setting and the community acquisition. The criteria that were initially there when we had limited testing were fever plus lower respiratory symptoms such as cough or shortness of breath plus no other etiology such as flu or pneumonia or other viral pathogen plus being sick enough to need hospitalization. As time has gone on and testing has increased, um, the uh, requirements uh, have generally started to shift more towards fever plus lower respiratory symptoms and no other explanation dropping off that hospitalization requirement piece uh, with the idea of trying to track and trend the disease. You know, when you look at our numbers in Washington, uh, we've had, I think, the case fatality went up to 11 today out of a positive 70, which is an index of, you know, mortality way exceeds what we saw in China. And I think that's just because we've had such limited testing in comparison to other places in the world that are running tens of thousands of these tests a day. Uh, and catching a lot more positives. So I think as we expand that, you'll start to see that change. Um, and as availability of testing grows, I think our testing will grow. But uh, we try to you know, expand it slowly, but I would focus on fever plus lower respiratory symptoms as a baseline without another explanation for what we would consider testing. And, and you're, you're actually, um, to this point, you've been really getting, getting by with clinical screening. And you mentioned you're in this transition point, really, between uh, trying to trying to protect the community and just kind of accepting that that it's out there in the community. I think you bring up a great point. I mean, you guys had a couple unlucky rolls of the dice, right? You had this nursing home um, hit that you know had highly susceptible individuals, so that that kind of brought the fatality rate up in com combination with not having the available testing. Uh, it, it takes out your, it takes out the denominator, so to speak. So you've got now this high numerator over a lower than, than what would be expected denominator. So it's kind of like a double whammy there. So what you're saying is, probably it's not, uh, you know, 11 out of 70. It's probably more at, more in line with the kind of national mortality figures if if it, this thing uh, plays out over time. Definitely, I think you hit it on the head. We had a. a very sick cohort initially, which didn't help. But some of the recent epidemiologic testing has pointed to that this may have been circulating in the community for as many as five to six weeks, given some of the genetic testing. And I definitely am not an epidemiologist uh, or genetic specialist in virus uh, pathology, but our experts are saying that more likely than not, this was actually in the community in the background um, getting uh, transmitted. And so uh, that definitely would change again that denominator if we had been testing for six weeks rather than six days. Well, I'm glad to hear you're not an epidemiologist because you're like an expert at about 10 different things. So I'm, I'm glad that's not one of them. Uh, hey, so one more question uh, related to UW and the potential to collaborate around testing with them. You know, I talked with um, Aaron about this yesterday. I don't know who the right person to answer this is, but but the fact that they've got this some um, really cool um, virology lab or something like that where they're going to be able to just crank out tests and 
could you explain that a little bit? And then what would you recommend to other people that have like a, an academic, you know, super cool center like that down the road? We've got a level four virology lab and uh, I believe it was Paul Allen gave $100 million to help set it up uh, a few years ago. Uh, probably more like a decade ago now, I guess. I'm getting older. Uh, but uh, so we do have some really, truly cool experts in the region. I think the key thing, though, is no matter how cool it is, you know, reaching out and making sure that your system in your region is building out your testing capacity is important. But the other piece of it that I would say is keeping the focus on helping contain the concern and the worried well and not just flooding whatever resources you have with a bunch of tests because people want it. And that's one of the tough conversations, but that's actually one of the great things about the DOH screening form we have here in Washington is the physical piece of paper you can walk in and be like, look, you don't have it, check, 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 check. We're not going to screen you. And even among my worried well patients I've seen, having worked the last five night shifts uh, in our urban trauma center, I haven't gotten anybody, you know, riled up and yelling at me that's demanding to get a test. I, I'm sure it's happened, but having uh, a real calm approach to it and an algorithm has really helped us not flood our limited resources. And so I think that's one of our key roles as emergency physician is to keep calm and keep focused. And this is a great opportunity to help lead that effort in our system and in the public. So Nathan, I'm taking notes and I made myself a little asterisk here to, to review Nathan's patient experience scores from the past week. <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, I'm going to validate that claim. No, just uh, just kidding. I know this is like this is super tough, and um, I, I bet it's really difficult to talk a patient down off the ledge if they're really, um, you know, hell bent on getting a test, so to speak. Um, but it, you know, in the interest of uh, of moving forward, I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk, Tom, if, if you wouldn't mind, like, okay, so I've got I've got these people coming in. I've got them segmented you know, really don't have testing capabilities, but, but let's say in the, in the magical world you even did. Um, how do you decide who goes home and who stays? And then how are you guys dealing with the patients that you're sending home right now? And, and you know, realizing that some may be low risk, some may be, you know, oh, that's kind of medium risk, but I don't know where to put them, uh, but they're not really sick yet. So how are you guys dealing with that? Yeah, I think, you know, you bring up a couple of valid points. You know, one is Nathan's already mentioned the worried well, and you can check my patient SAT scores as well. I haven't really been in the department much. But, you know, I think on that line alone, it's pretty interesting because where I found a lot of value for patients that, um, that were worried because of exposure or minor illness, um, you know, it gave me an opportunity as a, a, a clinician provider to educate my patients you know, on the what ifs and the futures and how to protect themselves and their family from a future state because we all know this is going to be bigger than it is now and I think the the more opportunity that we have to educate, you know, our walking well, our mild upper respiratory patients as well as the other patients that present into the emergency department or even the periphery clinics that are keeping them out of our ER, I think the better. And I think from a, a planning standpoint and my, my thoughts and recommendations for a lot of our other sites and medical directors who are not seeing any of this yet is to, to in part prepare their community in as much as they're uh, preparing their department. 
But I think we all know patients, I mean, the, the mantra of emergency medicine is when you walk in the door, is this patient going to be admitted or go home? And I don't think that's really changed from a respiratory standpoint, um, you know, aligning uh, the side of patients who are extremely ill going straight to the back versus those that are cohorted and initially screened uh, in order to be tested. And then the decision is on those patients specifically, you know, uh, are they going home? Yes, we've already determined that. But beyond the scope of that, as it relates to the risk and the screening form from our Department of Health, our patients that we need to further stratify and have them isolate at home if they're symptomatic um, or have them self-quarantine if they have a high uh, risk of exposure um, uh, without the need to isolate themselves from their family members at home. As we've looked in the World Health Organization report, many of our healthcare providers that ended up with the disease were actually exposed at home more so than the hospital. So the preparedness and the the need to um, not necessarily isolate ourselves, but certainly prepare ourselves from a contact isolation standpoint has really proven efficient and effective. So when we talk to our patients about uh, disposition planning to isolate or quarantine on the basis of their symptoms and risks, I think that's really going to help. But at the back end of that, those patients that we may test um, we're not going to get results right away, and the question is really who's following these results and what uh, closed loop or back end process is going to help validate both for us and the patients that we are containing, you know, worsening outbreak, I think is really going to be dependent on the Department of Health and, and how they're going to coordinate efforts with us. And so what we have done is uh, tracked some of these or these patients in general that are going home that's that's evolving over a period of time so we have a sense of who we have actually screened and sent home with or without symptoms on whether or not we tested so on a spectrum you know there's a variety of takes on on both the testing as well as you know how to prevent the spread of this based on you know the recommendations we're making in in conjunction with the department of health and further that the Department of Health has actually been very, uh, I wouldn't say accessible, but available to provide outpatient follow-up for patients, uh, and, and that includes providing the patients with a number to call in a couple days with any further questions or issues. So the, 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 that's a great summary of kind of that disposition phase of it. And, um, you know, I, I heard you actually say you're sending some symptomatic people home. Uh, you know, that might be people with a fever, people with a cough, maybe they have a ne negative x-ray, their, their pulse ox looks good, maybe you did a CBC and they don't um, have any concerning findings like lymphopenia or anything like that. Um, you send those home, but you also sit, send some high-risk people home and you say, well, hey, um, you know, the health department will reach out to you. Are you giving them, like, papers from the CDC that, that teach you how to um, home quarantine or isolate, and then um, do you have any concerns about the health department actually reconnecting with the patient? And then my last kind of, I know this is like three questions all in one little bundle here, but um, the, 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 other, the other kind of question is, you know, we know that the, the sick people, when they get sick, they don't get sick for an average of eight days. So do you worry that you're going to send somebody home and they're going to go, oh, hey, I'm feeling pretty well. And then, you know, they come back on day seven and they're, they're pretty sick. They got bilateral infiltrates and, and, you know, they're, 
O2 sats are in the, in the 80s. You worry about that? Should we be doing anything actively to follow these patients up outside of the health department? Yeah, uh, you're right. A lot of questions there. And, you know, I think a lot of this comes down to education. <laughs> I, I, it's interesting because as, um, as I was exposed to, you know, patients early this week and seeing a fair amount of them, I did a little bit of exploration. And it's interesting, we actually have a COVID, or it's actually a novel coronavirus discharge instruction for our patient, uh, patients that we can actually send them home with. And I actually, it's a good form to send with patients who uh, don't even have any concern or exposure or symptoms associated with uh, this disease process. So I think educating the non-ill, and then certainly, I mean, we we are afraid to send belly pains home at, time, at times without a definitive diagnosis, but we also realize that's, that's the nature of emergency medicine. And so close follow-up and return precautions are certainly a, a huge element of that, understanding that that initial case here in the state of Washington did not develop infiltrates or more severity of their illness until about nine days after symptom onset. So certainly I think we do all uh, have some concern, but from a, a crisis management perspective, um, I think our only benefit at this time is coordinated efforts with Department of Health and CDC recommendations and good patient education and indications for follow-up. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. I mean, when you talk about, you know, transitioning from, you know, trying to isolate every person you find with with potentially coronavirus to widespread outbreak, you, you're kind of transitioning from being able to care for every, for every patient to kind of almost population health in a way. So I, I appreciate your you're kind of walking us through that. Aaron, I'm going to kind of flip over to you and, and just ask you about what's going on on the inpatient side. So you already told us that you had boarding to begin with. And I imagine, you know, get all these people coming in, you've got some intubated, pretty sick patients. You may even have some, uh, some patients sitting on there on O2. And, you know, maybe they're requiring respiratory isolation. Maybe we don't have test backs. We can't we can't give them a regular old room at least, you know, but, but we know from the WHO report that, that you know, really ill patients sit in the hospital uh, on, uh, on average for three to six weeks, and even the well ones sit in there for two weeks. So um, you're concerned about, you know, ventilator availability, space to treat these patients. Have you done any planning on the inpatient side as it pertains to you know, what's my next site that I'm going to care for for patients if my ICU gets full? Tell me about that inpatient side piece of it. Sure. So to kind of segue from what Tom was saying, uh, the inpatient physicians were quite clear with us that just because we have a coronavirus does not mean we have a lower threshold to admit. <laughs> so <laughs> imagine the, that. The, the I same can't rules. That happened. Yeah, the same rules why we always admit people still apply. And the main difference is we don't know what we don't know initially because we are in the middle of a pretty significant flu season in Washington. And as we're finding out, we also have plenty of adenovirus, rhinovirus, and regular other URI virus in the area that cause very similar presentations uh, with severe illness in um, our, our patient population. And so when you admit a patient, 
you don't know for sometimes up to 72 hours or even longer if they're going to test positive for coronavirus or the viral panel that you sent. So anywhere between 24 hours to 72 hours afterwards, um, at least in our situation, is kind of a time period where we are isolating them until we find another reason for why they're ill. If their blood cultures pop positive the next day for strep, great, then that pneumonia is coming from something different. And so we can take them off of regular iso uh, the isolation. So at this point, we are isolating virtually everyone that's admitted in an intubated or aerosolized, potentially aerosolizing state with CPAP, BiPAP, um, and using the higher level of protection that we can. Um, when we run out of those rooms, we haven't thus far. We've been fortunate uh, that these have kind of come in waves right now. But when we run out of those rooms, then the patients that are intubated and, and have the highest care will have the highest level of isolation. And if someone's admitted and they're just on four liters of oxygen by nasal cannula or something like that, then a mask over their face in a closed room is going to be second best option. And so certainly every day is a triage of vital resources, scarce resources, and what we can do. And so I remember day one when we found out that uh, we had a positive patient up north and we could be headed our way. Um, it was pretty mass pandemonium on the, on the morning discussion throughout the hospital as we, we had our morning meeting. And I remember saying, hey, guys, this is a marathon. And every day we don't have to be to 130, 140% occupancy. We're at 103% occupancy today. Let's get to 105 and then 107 and 110 because unlike an explosion or some type of other um, mass casualty disaster, you're not going to get a thousand patients all at once. It kind of builds. And you may get some of the very, very sick patients at first, and that's kind of your indicator that the wave is coming. And so you, you have a little bit of time to really get that in place. But I, the main thing I would encourage everyone is to look at the plans that you have for disaster and then blow them up. Because in the long run, you're potentially looking at 150, 200% occupancy, I don't know, but something more than you've ever done before that nurses and other people that you work with aren't used to visualizing. Yeah, that's a really great point. And it's almost like you have to forget everything you know about normalcy. And I think a great example of this is those of us on the um, Emerging Infectious Disease Task Force that we kind of put together uh, to start kind of working through this, uh, we got a, an email from a, an Italian doc in northern Italy, and it was this um, really chilling portrayal of what he's going through right now. And this is just a few days ago, but um, you know they're on their third alternate or their second alternate site to their ICU, where they're they're ventilating patients. They've run out of ventilators, and they're they're literally making ad hoc ventilators or uh, breathing assist devices. I would say out of uh, masks and, um, and um, air tubing connected to, to some pressurized oxygen coming out of the walls. So, you know, it's, it's one of these things where we need to think really, uh, we, we got enough time to kind of plan this stuff out. We have enough time to dust off our ventilators. We know that, uh, uh, you know, on average, you know, 13 or 14% of these patients are going to be severely ill. 6% are going to require um, ICU admission, which basically means they're going to be intubated because they're they're an ARDS, right? So it's it's thinking through those those kind of consequences very carefully and saying, where's our next spot? We're going to care for that those patients, and and where's the next spot after that? And I think and I think it might have been Tom that I was talking to before that said, um, 
you know, that, that your hospital has been able to kind of convert some areas um, from uh, into negative pressure based on just flipping some switches on some ventilation systems. Anybody know anything about that? Yeah, so facilities maintenance is, uh, is a very good a very good friend to have and somebody to seek out early. And that was our initial first question several years ago when we were looking for Ebola plans was which rooms can we rapidly isolate from the rest of the hospital and either A, vent them out the roof or, you know, some other place where it's not infecting the main circulatory air system in the hospital. And so we had already identified those rooms a couple years ago and had them fairly well um, prepared so that they were able to stand up seven new isolation beds for us within uh, 12 hours. Uh, it was it was really pretty quick without that pre-planning that we just fortunately had uh, already obtained um, it, it would have been much more difficult but so after we got the first seven beds uh, that's when I went in the next day and said great we filled five of them so guess what we're gonna need seven more by tomorrow so you've got another 24 hours to come up with it and so we have a significant uh, a significantly higher number than we did before and we're still expanding that um, on a daily basis as probably a slower rate uh, because we haven't quite hit the, the peak of where we're heading yet for sure. Awesome. So I really appreciate that account. And I, I think that's a big take-home message, I think, for a lot of people is, is we need to have those discussions with our facilities people and we need to explore what those options are before we need to do it. Um, you know, we don't want to wait until, you know, the, the, the second I run out of beds to, to start exploring that. The other, the other thing I want to kind of just get um, an opinion on, and, and maybe this is, maybe this is really geared towards Nathan, uh, but I'm sure any of you guys can answer this. So, you know, all along the CDC has recommended, uh, you know, full aerosol protection, basically, uh, where N95 masks, um, you know, full visor on any patient come in contact, contact with, with gown and gloves, and you know, what we're hearing in some health departments and what we're hearing across the United States and in, in these little rumors kind of floating around is um, they're going to relax these, these, these uh, aerosol precautions and go back to droplet precautions where uh, the significance of that is we don't need N95 masks. We can use a regular old mask with a, with a regular old face shield just to kind of protect ourselves from, from the droplets. and and good old-fashioned gloves and gowns. Um, any, any thoughts on that? And Nathan, maybe you kick it off. And if, if do you think that's, that's where we're heading? I think there's a lot of people talking about that. And we have seen one of our health systems in the region do that, and one of our counties uh, start to move that direction. Our health system, Common Spirit, hasn't done it yet. Um, but I think there is that conversation. And it, it kind of goes back to that broader question of, you've know, got one foot on the side of, you know, contain at all costs an epidemic, and one foot in the side of this is here for the long haul. We've got to settle into treating it like a virus uh, that's in our community that definitely has a higher mortality but is going to be spread just like any other virus. And so I think that's the battle that we're, we're in right now, and I think we're starting to see that shift in the latter, recognizing that we've probably, you know, or maybe lost containment on this and may not be able to, to get it back um, by just doing aerosol and canceling, you know, large events. But th that debate is definitely being had at Department of Health level and uh, places that far exceed my pay grade uh, to opine on. Uh, but I, I think there is a, a contradiction in a way when we're sending folks home and telling them to just 
wear a mask and we're coming into them looking like Darth Vader uh, in our gear that probably leaves them a little head scratching when they're heading home to their loved ones. So uh, hopefully we can align what we're asking patients to do and what we're doing to protect our, our staff uh, and get it to a safe place for everybody. I, I think that'll help keep a constant messaging and keep the worried well and the fear a little bit at bay. But uh, still in evolution, you know, our health system hasn't yet relaxed, but they have enforced uh, other things to try to protect people like limiting visitors, limiting kids, and things like that to try to reduce the spread. So uh, interesting evolving times. Who knows by the time we put this podcast up, uh, it may have all changed already. Just two days ago, the CDC kind of relaxed their recommendations a little bit on, you know, the whole full PPE thing. Um, and they've kind of adjusted it to really reflect whether the patient's wearing a mask or not, and they've, they've, they've let up a little bit on it. So that's kind of interesting, and then I, I think it's great if we can kind of shift to that, because uh, Aaron, when you uh, emailed me initially, um, one of your comments was, you know, uh, that all the hospital systems in Seattle were running, literally running out of their N95s, and that kind of highlights the whole supply, supply chain issue that we can't even get into on this call, but well, that'd be a big relief, right, if we didn't need N95s on, on any patient who's got a cough in our department, right? Absolutely. So, um, so guys, uh, this, is, um, this has really been a fantastic, you know, frontline um, account of what you guys are going through, and it's amazing. You all seem pretty laid back, and it's it, you know, kind of typical ER docs. You're just kind of going with the flow up. Really appreciate that. I wonder if I could just kind of start off maybe with Tom, and um, you know if there are if there are two or three kind of big take-home points for folks in the Midwest or the East Coast who just really hasn't you know nailed yet. What recommendations would you give uh, to those FMDs or those frontline docs who who are just starting to prepare for this or are starting to see some some local stuff? Yeah, I've had some conversations because uh, I have a span of control with APC leadership all on the West Coast, uh, many who have not seen any of this. And one of my big questions to them is what conversations from a hospital leadership and planning are you having and are you looping in the Department of Health and coordinating efforts with their plans? The other thing is obviously um, um, Nathan mentioned a couple paranoias, but I think, you know, as or a couple uh, feet, if you would, into the spectrum of what we're doing. But one, you know, is to try and, uh, you know, control some of the paranoia. I think in general, when I'm talking to some of my colleagues, the overall sense is not as bad as things evolve. And we realize we're a little bit more prepared than we actually are. But a lot of that, as Aaron alluded to, is much in the sense that we've had some retrospective planning on high-risk diseases such as Ebola. So I think in most places you're probably a little bit more prepared than you think, but you kind of have to talk about it. And, and then the other key piece is, is educating your, your patients. It's interesting, when I did a shift the other day, um, I saw a fair amount of upper respiratory patients, but by the end of my shift, even the patients that did not have any upper respiratory had masks on, and, and some of them actually had gloves on. You know, and this is a droplet uh, issue. We're seeing providers and nurses wearing masks on the floor when they're not ill, and you know, we know that that's a high risk of 
self-contaminating, if you would. So I think education is the other key piece in this. Great. Uh, that's really, I really appreciate that perspective, uh, Tom. Uh, let's go to Aaron. What, you know, if you got top three things you could kind of push out to the rest of the United States, what, what would it be? Sure. We're trained in EM medicine. Let's do it, man. Stand up and own it. That's what we do. That's what we're here for. That's what we signed on for. That's why we took the Hippocratic Oath was to be there for public health emergencies. And this is a public health emergency and it is right in our face. We are the absolute front lines of this. And so in order to do the best that we can, you need to be right now in every facet aspect of planning and looking forward to this. And you have time until you see that first critical case that somebody identifies in your community or your neighboring community. And then you know it's just a matter of time before you start to see it uh, walking through the door. And that's what you want to be prepared for. You want to be having those difficult conversations of when do we stop surgery schedule? When do we decide that we're going to turn the cafeteria into a bunch of bunk bedrooms and have that already pre-planned? And I'm not standing here saying I have all those because we got caught rather by surprise and a little bit flat-footed. But uh, we are having a lot of those on the fly. And even if you don't have an opportunity to get that far ahead of it that fast. If you have a case popping today, remember, you've got 102% occupancy today, 105% occupancy tomorrow. It's not going to come at you all at once immediately. Um, not, not by any method I've seen anyway. So that's number one. Number two, don't put your PPE out on the front desk where somebody can just walk in off the street and take it, because <laughs> they will. <laughs> all that PPE, all those masks, even just the regular surgical masks, the gowns, the gloves, anything that you have, I would talk to your C CSR right now and lock it up and then get a solution immediately with your administration and your nursing leaders so that it's dispensed uh, equitably and doesn't start to walk off uh, because those things grow legs and you're going to need them. And uh, that's what I got. Wow. So really appreciate that. I did hear about that person kind of running in and grabbing all the uh, N95 masks. That's that's scary, and that's actually one of the ASAP recommendations is to, A, beef up security, but also reach out to your police force and kind of get some some agreements in place that they're going to kind of step up um, the security around your hospital. So definitely appreciate that perspective, and a lot of people probably haven't faced that yet, but they're probably exposed. So Nathan, uh, uh, what do you think about top three recommendations? I think one of our key roles in all of this is to be that voice of reason. Aaron laid out that uh, you know eloquent discussion of all the things we need to think through so that we're responding rapidly in an organized fashion, and it's not just a lot of wheel spinning because I think there's a lot of people that want to talk and express their fears and frustrations in healthcare that don't have the clinical expertise of dealing with these types of issues. And emergency medicine, this is our bread and butter. Uh, so I think we need to be in those conversations, leading them and helping guide that conversation and not letting the mass herd necessarily move the problem, but letting thought leaders move the solutions here. The second thing I would say is if we know we've got peers that have health issues, you know, if we've got an older clinician, maybe they shouldn't be the designated COVID screener for the day. You know, if we've got people who have underlying diseases, you know, and challenges that are on chronic immunosuppression, you've got somebody in your group or your nursing staff that's got ulcerative colitis and on Humira, they probably shouldn't be your designated COVID nurse or COVID tech. So, uh, you know, think through those kind of things, and we need to be out there projecting to the staff and 
that uh, we're engaged with, that we are able to you know, take care of these people safely. Because we've seen when fear gets ahead and when we're quarantining all of our medical we may not have the ability to care for our patients. We just had to decompress one of our nursing facilities in the community because they had five nurses to care for 80 patients because they had put so many people out and so many people were calling off. And we're going to battle this epidemic. We need bodies. We need nurses. We need techs. We need docs. We need people cleaning rooms. And if we're out there not projecting that you're going to be fine, that we're going to do the right thing, we're going to keep you safe, then we're doing a disservice to all those patients that are going to come in with the disease. So keep calm, lead the conversation, recognize there is risk. The risk for most of us is pretty minimal, and help educate your staff and keep those that are at higher risk on your team safe. So I really appreciate those sentiments. I, I, I love the fact that we're kind of talking about true mortality here because, you know, you see the numbers floating around like 3.8% and that sort of thing. And, what, what, what they don't tell you, unless you really know behind those numbers, is there was this immediate really high fatality rate in China, but as the disease progressed, it got lower and lower and lower and lower. And, and that's just the, again, that's the denominator of cases they actually confirmed, which there, there was probably many, many more cases in, in the community that actually drove those numbers that would actually drive that mortality actually even lower. Uh, I think your point's very well taken. Elderly, comorbid conditions, but you know, there is a severe form of this disease and we could actually do a lot to protect our own folks, but also recognize those people that are potentially at risk. But your point is well taken. The younger with no comorbidities uh, are, are probably safe and we need you on the front lines. And I think we should all take a deep breath. You know, this is serious, but we're going to get through it. And the way we get through it, by sticking together, communicating, educating um, everyone about this disease and how to take care of it. So, so guys, really, really appreciate you, you all joining. You know, in this podcast, we talked about front end and what you guys are doing. And literally, it's that sorting them at the front door and keeping the the respiratory people on one side, keeping the non-respiratory on the other, getting all the high-risk patients who could potentially infect others into a cohorted isolation room in the back, and then obviously getting the sick people where they need to be. It's classic, lean streaming, uh, love it. Uh, we also talked about testing and how um, you can do whatever you need to do by good old-fashioned um, screening, clinical screening criteria and um, hopefully testing will evolve. They'll get testing out to the front lines. Um, but, uh, but really it's about clinical profiling and trying to understand what's the best disposition for your patient based on their presentation and based on those, those key factors you guys talked about, fever, um, lower respiratory infection uh, symptoms, um, and plus or minus no other etiology, and then do they need to be admitted. And then, um, then we talked about how to discharge patients safely from home, how to educate them, how to teach them about screening and isolation, and then appropriate follow-up with the health department. And then the last thing we covered was just this um, inpatient admission and what that potentially looks like uh, regarding isolation, regarding expansion of, um, of these higher acuity rooms and availability of, um, of uh, respirators and, and other things like that. So, 
Man, uh, all-star cast here, uh, guys on the front line. Thank you, thank you so much for joining me. And um, I'm sure uh, many, many people in the country will hear this podcast and go, wow, thanks for the help. You gave me a lot of great ideas. So appreciate it, guys. Thanks for helping out and uh, stay safe out there. Thanks. Thanks for uh, taking the time.